Welcome back tonight to the evening service. So glad you've come. And we look forward to this evening, the fellowship time to follow, and also the question and answer time. I trust you've come prepared. And I know that I've come prepared as well as I can be prepared, all right? Find your way to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 this evening while you're turning. And of course, it is a joy once again to be back at Maranatha this evening. Uh, just uh, encouraged tonight by uh, Carissa's baptism, by those that joined. And uh, that's what it's all about, amen? Uh, that's what this church should be all about. And uh, no doubt, Maranatha has been a light in this community, in this city, in this state for many years. And uh, we'd like to see that continue, amen? First Thessalonians chapter 2, and we'll begin reading in verse 1. We're going to read down through verse 13. And I'm going to do my best tonight to communicate a truth tonight that I be believe uh, will answer maybe some questions for each one of us, but also just kind of draw our attention back uh, to, to what God desires oftentimes for our lives and for our church. Uh, the Bible says, in beginning in verse number 1, follow along as I read in 1 Thessalonians chapter number 2. For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you, that it was not in vain. But even after that we had suffered before, and were shamefully entreated, as you know, at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile, but as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, which trieth our hearts. For neither at any time use we flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness, nor of men sought we glory, neither of you, nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you, not the gospel of God only, but also our own selves, because you were dear unto us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and travail, for laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you, we preached unto you the gospel of God. Ye are witnesses, and God also, how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. As you know, how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father doth his children, that you should walk worthy of God, who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing. Because when you received the word of God, which ye have heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this night, for gathering us together once again in your house. And I thank you, Lord, for the truth of the word of God tonight, how it speaks to our hearts, Lord, how it instructs us to walk in this life, and Lord, how it guides us in every step of, of, of this life. And Lord, I pray that tonight that you would open our hearts and our minds to the truth of this passage. And Lord, help me simply as I deliver this passage, Lord, tonight, that simply you would speak through me. Lord, I pray that once again that this church would not see me tonight, but that they would simply see what the Word of God is saying. And Lord, I, tra I trust that tonight, uh, Lord, you would just work in hearts and lives, and I pray this in your name. Amen. Well, tonight, I have to say, I love my wife very much. She's an incredible woman 
who supported me all throughout our married life, all throughout ministry. She's been steadfast in raising our six wonderful children. And by the way, she didn't know I was going to be talking about this tonight, okay, so I kind of put her on the spot. But I think back to the time when I first called Jen on the phone while she was attending Pensacola Christian College. That night we talked on the phone for four hours. First time we ever talked. We probably would even talk longer, but the, the college had a lights-out curfew, and she said, I have to go. But that night set in motion our relationship that continued to blossom over the course of that semester. Of course, I wasn't at Pensacola. I was out here, but she was clear across the United States. At the beginning of the summer of 2003, we officially started dating, and it was very obvious to me that Jen was the one that I wanted to spend the rest of my life with. Over the next few months, both our lives were being knit together, and everything we did revolved around being with each other. We were in love. It didn't take long before the M word came along and it was being mentioned and brought up in conversation. Knowing that marriage was just now in view for the future, where did that cause me to end up? The jewelry store, of course. It was time to start looking at rings. And that's what I began to do. Well, thankfully, I have a sister who's in the jewelry business and that just kind of worked out really well. And she has been for many years. I remember the time when I met my sister Bethany at the jewelry store to discuss different diamond options. She showed me that day some incredible diamonds. I mean, she said, Phil, here's a one-carat solitaire, and if you like, really like this one, it's a one-and-a-half-carat one solitaire. And, and she, she, she explained to me the cut and the clarity and the, the uh, color and everything about that diamond, and I'm sitting there going, wow, that's, that's impressive. Now, let's suppose that after seeing all these diamonds and getting the prices, I said, you know, these are all great. And I'm sure one of these diamonds could definitely be the one for the one I love. But I was wondering, Beth, do you have anything cheaper? <laughs> I mean, a lot cheaper. You see, with the wedding expense, the honeymoon expense, and getting into a house and just starting out, you know, saving some money on this ring would really help my budget. I mean, do you have anything that just looks like a real diamond? Yeah, you can't tell the difference, right? Maybe, maybe one of those CZs, those cubic zirconiums. Do you have any of those? And right about now, you'd probably be saying, what are you, an idiot? And you would be right. You see, when shopping for a diamond for my future wife, I don't want something that just looks like a real diamond. I want to know that that diamond is genuine. It's certified. It's got paperwork. I want to see the GI report. I want to see a flawless diamond. I want to know what, that, that what I'm giving her is, is the best that I can give her. And I want to know that that diamond's been tested, that it's been proven, that it's been appraised. You see, I want the real deal. Why would I waste my time looking at something that's a fake, that displays no real value? I want the real deal. And you know, when looking for a church, I want the same thing. And the church at Thessalonica here was the real deal. This church was made up of people who were clearly saved. They were faithfully laboring for the Lord. They were evangelistic and they were mission-minded, as well as anxiously awaiting the Lord's return. You know, in studying the early New Testament churches, we find each one had a different personality, as well as a different spiritual temperature. In fact, in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, we see the seven literal churches of Asia Minor. The last church mentioned in Revelation chapter 3 is actually the church 
at Laodicea. And if you, take, if you uh, could take your Bibles this evening, we'll go over there and read a few verses about this church. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 14, the Bible says, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou were cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. You see, the word Laodicea here literally meant the people's rights. Welcome to the people's rights Baptist church. You see, no person would desire their church to reflect the Laodicean church. Yet slowly, I believe, good churches are being affected today by the changing culture and the persuasion of men. The fabric of what used to make a strong church has been tainted by allowing poor and unbiblical philosophies to creep in. And sadly tonight, so many churches, I believe, are lining up with the Laodicean church. They're lukewarm spiritually, while, while at the same time operating a fully functioning, complacent ministry, giving people what they want to hear, not what they need to hear. You see, I believe the church as a whole is rich today. Oh, we have nice offerings. We have nice buildings. We have nice programs. We have nice websites. And those are all good things. But oftentimes we can look at those things and say we have need of nothing else. Not realizing that we lack the most important ingredient, which is the power of God. We settle for a cheapened formula for the church and try to pass it off as the real deal. This was not so in Thessalonica. Paul could definitely reaffirm the fact that this was a remarkable ministry. Why? Because he stated in, in chapter 1 and verse 3, he said, I remember your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in the Lord. You see, the church at Thessalonica serves as an awesome example to churches today. Churches like this church. You see, chapter 1, as you read in 1 Thessalonians, if you read through that chapter, it gives us a picture of what we would call the ideal church. But when we come to chapter 2, I believe it speaks of what the Bible is, is characterizing as the ideal pastor. If there was ever a perfect pastor, this is what his ministry would look like. But what was so special in Thessalonica? Why did this ministry stand out? And what did Paul's ministry look like there? We will notice tonight that what made this church real and how a church should reflect this model of ministry. And so we're going to go through this chapter. I want to point out some characteristics that I hope will be a help to us tonight, that as we consider our lives and our testimony, that it would reflect this church in Thessalonica. First of all, I see it was a church with a pure testimony. We find this in verses 3 through 6. For sake of time, we'll not read them again. We will touch on them by, in, 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 the, in the points. But in these verses, Paul is defending the integrity of this church. Paul knows that the enemy could bring distrust concerning him as the preacher. And he knew that it could bring distrust to the message. And that's why Paul's defending it. He clearly spells out his purpose in ministry. First of all, Paul says in verse 3, for our exhortation was not of deceit. His ministry was not deceitful. You see, the pagan temples of that day in Thessalonica, no doubt they were places of deceit. 
No doubt the world is out to deceive. No doubt Satan is out to deceive. Paul was different. You see, Paul had the truth. Romans 12.2 tells us, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, and prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You see, I believe to attract a crowd by telling them to come just as they are and leave without really any true change in their heart is deceitful. It's against the very word of God. But sadly today, many churches are doing it. Paul was not going to deceive the people and just tell them what they wanted to hear. He was going to give them what they needed to hear. And that was the truth of the scriptures alone. And one thing I can say about Maranatha Baptist Church is the truth is preached here. And I'm so thankful for a church that preaches the word of God, where the word of God is open. And Paul displayed this model of ministry. He says, I'm not going to deceive you. Yes, the truth is going to be hard oftentimes to hear. But Paul said, I'm going to give you the word of God, not leave anything out, not add anything to it. We we see secondly in this verse that his ministry was not dirty. He said, for our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness. You see, Paul was a morally pure man. He had no hidden sin or anything that would grieve the Holy Spirit's working. Paul had nothing to hide, but was open about everything. In 2 Timothy 3, verse 10, Paul said to Timothy, But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience. When Paul said that you've seen my manner of life, he said, you've seen me up close. You know about me. I'm not trying to hide anything from you. And you know, that's another spirit in this church that I embrace, that many have shared some things in their life, and you say, I just want to, in a spirit of transparency, I want to tell you what I'm dealing with. And you know what? That's a sign of a healthy church, to be able to not uh, sit around and, and, and act like we have it all figured out, but to come to one another and say, you know what, there's something in my life that, that I just want to be upfront with you about. And Paul had that attribute. You see, those in Thessalonica knew what Paul's ministry was about. They didn't have to guess or wonder what he was up to. He lived an open and honest and a holy life before this ministry. Could others in the people of this church speak highly of your manner of life? You know, we should be striving for that. When the Bible gives the qualifications for deacons and pastors... In 1 Timothy 3, the very first thing, the very first qualification is that he be blameless. The word blameless literally means nothing to take hold upon. Let me remind you, it doesn't mean that he's perfect. It doesn't mean that he lives perfectly, but it does mean that he should strive to have an unblemished reputation, that he should be striving for those things. Paul was not going to allow himself to get tripped up by Satan and entangle his life with the filth of this world, and remind us tonight, neither should we. We should always be striving to keep our life pure and holy before God. Because Satan is out to destroy us, and all it takes is a a sinful decision to destroy our testimony and our service for Christ. So Paul did not live a contradictory life, but he stood upon the truth found only in the Word of God. We find third... In verse number four, but as we're allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, which trieth our hearts. We find here that Paul's ministry was not democratic. 
This church was not just simply out to please men. You know, the modern churches of our day have fashioned their ministries after the desires of men. Seminars are given in which pastors are taught how to cater to more people in their services. And today's stagnant Christian and the average unsaved man is boldly saying what they do and do not want in church. We need Christians today who would challenge our generation to follow God, even when it's not convenient, even when it's not popular. Galatians 1.10 tells us, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. You see, it's not the business of the church to adapt Christ to men, but men to Christ. And our, our attitude should be to not water down the truth, but to uphold the truth. Paul was more concerned with spreading the gospel and pleasing God rather than gaining popularity with the people. So we see that it was a church with a pure testimony. Secondly, we see tonight, it was a church with a personal touch. A church with a personal touch. And we find this in verses 7 and 8. First of all, we find that Paul was personal in his care for the people. Verse number 7. But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. You see, I believe a church must maintain a strong position doctrinally and stay grounded on the word of God, but I also believe that we can be gentle and easily approached by the lost and among those that we minister to. Jude 22 tells us, and of some have compassion, making a difference. Paul looked upon these Thessalonian believers who had recently been saved, and he said he looked at them as his own children in the faith. He had care for them. He loved them. He exerted himself in every possible way to build them up in Christ. Paul was there to nurture and strengthen these brand new Christians in the word of God. And we ought to be very careful. We ought to be very careful how we approach the lost. Yes, we want to uphold the truth, but we also want to approach it in a loving way. We also want to show that because Christ cared for us, that he cares for others as well. You see, people don't really care how much you know until they know how much you care. And it's important to make yourself available to the people who need that personal touch. And you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's just a blessing to see that in this church, from the oldest to the youngest, just to see the personal touch from the, the leaders and from the, from the deacons and from the Sunday school teachers and from the members of this church to see that that's something that is important to make that personal connection and that personal touch. Paul had care for the people. But we also see that Paul was personal in his commitment to the people. Verse 8, he said, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own selves, because you were dear unto us. You see, Paul literally laid himself out there for these people. For the fellow believers of the church at Thessalonica, Paul said, I will give myself for you. Paul said, I will gladly spend and be spent for you. He not only gave them the gospel, but he gave himself. The Thessalonians knew that Paul's ministry was real because it was personal. And it was truly committed to care for the flock. You see, we can tell others everything we know about the Bible until we're blue in the face. But we will never effectively reach them until they see a life that truly cares for them. 
And may this church always be a church that cares for people, that sees people in their greatest need, that sees people lost and, and dying and in need of a Savior. Paul had that compassion. Paul had that commitment to care for the lost around him. But I noticed last of all tonight, it was a church with a powerful truth. We find this in verses 9 and 13. How do we know this? Well, Paul tells us, for we find there is power in the preached word of God. Paul said in verse 9, For you remember, brethren, our labor and travail, for laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you, we preached unto you the gospel of God. You see, Paul unashamedly preached the gospel of Christ. Romans 1 and verse 15 and 16 tells us, So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. Paul also said in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 21, It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. You know what the world looks at us tonight on Halloween night? October 31st, we're in church on a Sunday night, and you're sitting here listening to me preach. You know what they, look, you know what they say? It's foolish. You, you, you people are out of your mind. But you know what the Bible says? That it's saved, it, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Not foolish preaching, not foolish preachers, but the foolishness of preaching. God has chosen the instrument of preaching as the vehicle by which men's hearts are stirred. And Jeremiah 20 and verse 9 tells us, But his word was in my heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I was weary with forbearing, and I could not stay. You see, every God-called preacher understands the burning passion that God has placed in his heart to stand and proclaim the truth of God's word. To, to, to stand unashamedly and say, Thus saith the Lord, and the local church is to be the pillar and ground of truth. And as a preacher, my primary responsibility is to herald forth the truth. And nothing can substitute for preaching the truth of God's word. Someone said the business of the preacher is to fill the pulpit, not the pews. You see, the preach, preaching the word is without question the most important ministry and practice of any local church. It should never be shunned. It should never be shortchanged. Paul understand the priority when he very plainly admonished young Timothy in, in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 2. He said, Timothy, preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. Oh, Paul didn't tell Timothy to preach stories, to preach illustrations, to preach opinions, to preach traditions. No, he said, preach the word. And not that we can't use these tools, but they should never serve as our foundation. See, preaching isn't preaching until the Bible is open, until God's word is read and his truth is expounded upon. And preaching can't be powerful unless it is filled with the word of God. And preaching should be powerful. Isaiah 58 and verse 1 tells us, Cry aloud, spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet, and show my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. Of all the instruments that... God could have chosen in his orchestra. He chose the trumpet to compare preaching his word. You see, the sound of a trumpet grabs your attention. And I believe so should preaching. Now remember, preaching isn't about yelling and 
shouting and running around and, and all of those things. It's not a call to performance. It's not a call to showmanship or self-glorification. It's a call to proclaim and preach the truth. And the hope for America is not in the White House. The hope for America is in God's house. This is not a time for weak men and weak pulpits and weak churches preaching weak messages. We simply need the truth of God's word. And I'm so encouraged by Maranatha because I sense in each one the hunger that you have to learn more about God every day, to open his word and to, to, to learn the truths of God's word and to dig, dig into it so that you can find the truths. If we want to save America, then we must see Americans saved. And the way we do that is by preaching Christ and him crucified. But not only is there power in the preached word of God, there's power in the preserved word of God. Verse 13. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. These were not Paul's words. These were not Paul's opinion or even his ideas. This was the very word of God. And may I remind you tonight that we can never improve upon the word of God. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 23 says, Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. God's word is preserved and it will be forever. Psalms 119 and verse 89, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. And may I remind you tonight, if it's settled in heaven, then mark it down, it's settled on earth as well. Matthew 24 and 35 tells us, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. God may bless our homiletical outline, our illustrations, and our stories, but he doesn't promise to. He only promises to bless his word. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. You see, the word of God is not a book of outdated stories. It's alive and it's powerful and it's been preserved. I believe the Bible from cover to cover. And I make no apologies for it. I even believe the color cover because it says Holy Bible. I believe in the one true God and that Jesus Christ is his only begotten son. That he was conceived of the Holy Ghost and born of the Virgin Mary. And he lived a sinless life, healed the sick, gave sight to the blind, raised the dead back to life. I believe in the cross where Jesus Christ, God's sacrificial lamb, shed his blood and was crucified for the sins of the world that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I believe in the resurrection, where Jesus Christ on the third day arose from the tomb and conquered death, hell, and the grave. And that today he sits at the right hand of the Father, and because he lives, we too shall live also. I believe in the local church, God's body of believers, where God is glorified, saints are edified, mercy is magnified, and grace is multiplied. I believe in the Holy Spirit who indwells the heart of every believer who is saved by grace through faith. He is our comforter. He is our friend. And he is our guide. I believe that one day Jesus Christ will, be, will come again for his own and that he will prove to this world once and for all that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. Do you believe that tonight? Amen. In closing, I want you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 3 please. Revelation chapter 3. 
Revelation chapter 3, in one verse, in verse 20, the Bible says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. You know, a few years ago, I, I got this cool little thing. Many, probably a lot of you have it as well. But I installed the ring video doorbell on, on my front porch. And uh, it's been there and it serves a great purpose. Whenever an individual comes to our door, it sends me an alert. Someone is at your front door. It's great. How many have them? Several. Wonderful invention. Picture with me tonight. Jesus is standing at the door of the church of Laodicea here. And he's knocking. If any man will hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. I trust that tonight that God would not have to knock on the door of Maranatha and say, are you rich? Are you increased with goods? Do you have need of nothing? But that tonight, Christ will look at this church and say, it's a church with a pure testimony. It's a church that has a personal touch. And it's a church that has a powerful truth. Maybe tonight, as a preacher, I'm standing alert that someone who's Jesus is at the door of your heart tonight. He's knocking, wanting to come in and do a work in your life. Maybe you've never trusted Christ as your Savior. The church at Laodicea, unfortunately, felt that they were fine, that they did not need the Lord, but how desperately we need the Lord tonight. We need His power. We need His presence. We need Him to fill this church with his work that only he can accomplish. Oh, as men, we get in the way. As people, we have our own ideas. And yes, there's many. But may we always strive to be a people that seek to please Christ. May God help this church to always display the qualities of the church at Thessalonica and to be on guard to never become like the church of Laodicea. May we always desire to have God's power and presence that he may control this church. Not any one of us, but that he may control this church.